statues and stories with Adam Levinson. We are at 7.05. We had a fantastic show on the Concrete Conservative about about basically the burdens of being a, an individualistic society over a collectivist society. And individualism is key to the success of the United States. So that was now. That was now. Now let's go back to then. And for that, we have Adam Levinson. You like that? As that segue, let's go to then with Adam Levinson. How are you, Adam? Good evening, everybody. So we're going to go back to three or so years to the 1780s, back to the time of the Constitution's adoption. Okay, man. So uh, we've do we have more pain and suffering, or are, are you telling us a tale of easy, uh, things get easier for us? That's an interesting question. So I, I think it makes sense to review a little bit of what we talked about last week. So this is the continuation of the discussion from last week. And it's also, and this is the pain part, it's historiography. So what is historiography? Historiography that we'll be talking about is the study of history and how the study of history over time, it's not stagnant. The the way historians, the goggles or the lenses that you use today reflect the issues in our understanding of today. Historians will give examples during other periods of time. They were a little biased or their eyes were open to the circumstances of their day. So the historical interpretations have changed. Now, I happen to think, and I'll be curious to get your opinions, that some historical interpretations are more accurate than others, but that this is a broader conversation, and this gets to the deeper level of what is history, what's the purpose of doing history. And the part of it is that we learn from history, but we also get an appreciation for where it comes from, what got us to where we are today. And we talked about last week the innovations that were built into the U.S. Constitution, which was an experiment in democracy, right, was uh, this coming together. We can talk about the different theories of uh, leadership and how, how leadership emerges. So last week we were talking about, uh, we went through a list of, of sort of accomplishments of the Founding Fathers, and let me just bang through some of these bullets so we get everybody up to speed. So we talked about what they accomplished at that Constitutional Convention. 1787 is when they met. They met in May. It continued through September, and over that four-month period, in the heat of the summer in Philadelphia, they left with a series of compromises, and there was good and there was bad, you could argue, about some of those compromises. But at the end of the day, it was a very workable document that became the foundation for the the most prosperous, I think we can all agree, and uh, you know, the most successful democracy and the longest lasting democracy in the history of the world, which is uh, the city on the hill that others have looked to as the model. So that's what happened over that summer of 1787. Let's walk through some of these accomplishments and then we'll pick up where we left off. So what did they accomplish? And the quick answer, just going through a list of these of these accomplishments, uh, they established that you'd have civilian control of the military in no particular order. They established that we would have a unified nation, which was which emerged out of the Revolutionary War, the 1776 is when the revolution started, right? So we had a federal system. What is a federal system? This is shared sovereignty. They have the states doing certain things. You have the federal government at the top, which has a certain sphere of influence for the federal government. There are overlapping areas, but it's a federalist system where there are certain things that are best left for the states and local governments to do. Other things where you need a more robust and a stronger federal government, but that was something which had never been done on that scale before of a federalist system, and we can talk about other accomplishments. So we had this intricate network of 
checks and balances. This is using the theory of Montesquieu and some of the Enlightenment thinkers, checks and balances that if, if the president wants to push too hard in one direction, then Congress can be there to uh, you know, put some stops, and that's the negotiation back and forth, at the pulls and the, and the pushes of how that system works, of institutional checks and balances. And well, also, what do we have? We have this notion that as new territories, originally it was only the 13 states, as new territories are added, they would come in as full-fledged states with the same rights. There are no winners and losers. The states are all equal under the Constitution, and new territories would come in. Now, what else? We have this idea of separation of church and state, that unlike in the, in the European and other countries, you had a one religious leader who would dictate what the religion had to be, and it was thought that that religion was the cohesion or the glue that held the society together, and the Founding Fathers understood that we had, and we can talk about religion and the important role that religion plays in, over time in, in history, but the, the idea was that we had enough little sects and enough denominations that the religions and the different religious groups can sort of check each other. So no one religion at the top. People get to pick and choose as opposed to having religion dictated to them from above. So that's this free notion of freedom of speech and all that comes out in the First Amendment, et cetera, et cetera. So what are the other accomplishments? And again, we could spend all hour talking about the accomplishments, but some of the other objections, you know, the other... Well, I mean, I mean wait, wait, I'd like to slow you down here because I think the, the audience... Uh, would probably want to delve into, you know, the the top two or three accomplishments. And, you know, we can slow it down and actually tell the story as opposed to just leaving the highlights and hope that they delve into the story. So what would be the two or three most important accomplishments that you gather from the Constitutional Convention? Okay, so you're putting me on the spot, and I welcome some back and forth here. So in terms of the biggest accomplishments from the Constitutional Convention— uh, one which I haven't mentioned yet is, and this gets into the history, that you know they were faced, in my opinion, with uh, a very difficult situation after the the Articles of Confederation is, is the Constitution that existed before our U.S. Constitution was adopted, and what the Articles was was merely a compact, or a sort of not a, a strong union, but it's a very weak alliance that was holding the 13 brand new states together. And the problem was that the states were starting to tax each other. They were fighting over navigation of rivers. Uh, they were there was difficulties that uh, there was concern that uh, the Spain uh, was, was shutting down the Mississippi River and was making claims in a way on uh, the, the western edge of Florida, which back then Florida extended all the way to the Mississippi, so that Florida territory. So there was concern that uh, Spain was nipping at her heels. Also in the northwest area, which this old territory came in under the, the 1783 was the, the, uh, the Treaty of Paris. So in theory, we were supposed to have this territory all the way from um, you know, the Mississippi River all the way to the to the to the coast of the Atlantic Ocean, but the problem was the British hadn't left the forts, and the British were fomenting controversies and stirring up trouble with the Native Americans. So uh, you had the British in the Northwest, then you had Spain in the Southwest. Uh, France, we're not exactly sure. We could debate about what France was up to. Uh, you know. But long story short, there were territorial issues. The states were fighting with each other. And the, the country was held together, the 13 states, under the Articles, because we were united against Britain. But once Britain had left the scene, we weren't united anymore, and the, the states started picking at each other. Uh, so that, that's the background of how they decided to – and started having tax revolts, which was Shays Rebellion. What is Shays Rebellion? You had these – soldiers who weren't getting paid and farmers who are getting taxed and they can't afford to pay the taxes. Uh, that led to a revolt, a revolt, like a mini revolution in Massachusetts, and that was suppressed. And there was concern that this could spiral out of control and we could have another internal revolution, not just fighting the British. We won that war. Now we're fighting each other. Yeah, so the Civil War could have ended up being over taxes, not slavery. So 
that was happening in Massachusetts. There was a, a big fight over taxes. So what is the point of my mentioning that little bit of history? Is that the founding fathers came together in, in Philadelphia during that summer at the behest of Madison and Hamilton and Washington, and they said, we've got to solve these problems. Otherwise, we're going to spin out of control. We're not going to be united under the Articles. We're going to probably, they thought they'd probably break into several regional confederations, and that would only be a matter of time, which would happen in Europe, when the, the different states would start actually fighting each other militaristically, not just economically. So that was the concern. So I think one of the big accomplishments, and this gets into some of the historians we can mention later, was uh, they accomplished the very important objective of, of not just amending the Articles of Confederation, but replacing the Articles with a workable constitution that was adaptable. And in fact, that's probably my best answer for you. The constitution included within it, because they knew it wasn't perfect. It included the possibility through democracy of, of expanding it, expanding liberty, expanding freedom, expanding the right to vote, eventually getting rid of slavery. So I think they came up with a recipe uh, for how you uh, have people living together, even though there are going to be political differences, that people can live together, that can resolve their disagreements politically, put in place, and this gets to your, your prior speaker, and I, and I want to go back and listen to it, which is one of the beauties of what your website does, is it allows people to hear the podcast. So I'm looking forward to learning more about uh, your last professor. And everyone knows me, I'm just a lawyer, so uh, I don't pretend to have any of that kind of expertise from some of your other speakers. but I, Well, I, but uh, Ed doesn't agree with you. He says he has all the expertise. Oh, come, on. come on. All right, continue, Ed. So, so here's my quick answer. Uh, not so quick, but I'm describing that they came up with a framework. They came up with a blueprint for how democracy can work across a, a wide area and how you can consolidate and how you can have different competing interests who may totally disagree with each other, but through a political process and a democratic process, uh, that's the model that they invented uh, with the Federalist system and uh, with the system of checks and balances and, you know, be careful. So that's so yeah. that's the number one, without a doubt, number one on the list was to keep the states homogenous and well, cohesive. Keep them together. Right. Okay. But yeah. So, yeah. So carry on. So the Constitutional Convention, without question, kept us an inverted... Uh, what eventually became a civil war over other reasons other than taxing each other. So that's today why we no state taxes each other in any way or form, which is thank God. Thank God for that. Imagine New York taxing us every time uh, every time we wanted to do business with New Yorkers. What would attorneys do over their fees? Would you guys tax each other over fees? When you guys refer business, come on, Ed, don't look down in the, mm -mm. don't look down at your phone like if you don't know the answer. What would a New York attorney do to a Florida? Attorney, uh, Florida attorney, who's uh, um, you basically going to give a referral to? Professional courtesy. Professional courtesy, no tax, and uh, you don't take a piece of the the ten percent of the fee or no? You know these yeah, things yeah, go yeah. back and forth. These things goes back and forth. Adam, you don't have to answer that. I just wanted to see how he wiggles in his in his chair, because you know he's a uh, he's of counsel by the way of WSQF Blink Radio of counsel at VD. General counsel. General counsel. Can I say of counsel? I can't. Why not? It's inaccurate. It's inaccurate. So, geez, I've been humbled. Okay, continue, Adam. So, we, we talked about the accomplishments. So, the other thing to cover today is how have historians over time look, looked at how this was accomplished and what is meaningful about it? And uh, the answer is, in different periods of time, historians 
came up with different conclusions and, and different insights. So originally, and people will remember, that Madison's notes, who was the note taker, in addition to being referred to as the father of the Constitution, he kept the journal and he kept the notes, and that was supposed to be confidential because they wanted the, the members who attended the founding of the Constitution and the, the writing of the Constitution to be able to speak freely. So that's why it was done secretly, and the notes were supposed to be secret. So it wasn't until the Journal of Congress and of the Continental Congress was published that people would have access to it, and that was in around 1819 was when the journal was made public, and it wasn't until 1840, after Madison died, that we had access, the historians, to all of Madison's records that were published. So there was a little period there until 1819 and until 1840 where historians didn't have all the data, uh, and over time they got more and more information. So the initial interpretations that the historians came up with, and we talked about this last month or last week, that a lot of people had quotes about how this was miraculous, and uh, the, these founders were demigods, and we quoted from Gladstone, who was a British prime minister. We, we quoted from John Adams how this was the single greatest effort in national deliberation that the world has ever seen. So a lot of the early historians, they put the founders up on a pedestal, and I agree, by the way, they should be on a pedestal for what they accomplished and the risk that they took. Right? But you know, the original historians weren't very critical. They were, they were more praising and they were more congratulatory than they were looking at it from the standpoint of, of real historical insights. So that was the early historians, and we can give some of the names. Uh, Bancroft is an example who wrote a multi-volume history of the United States. And again, it's, it's this theory of how you know this first generation of historians understood the unique political experiment, but uh, you know they were very complimentary, and they viewed it from the lens of um, you know this, this miraculous achievement that uh, we could debate about how extraordinary it was. But um, you know the, the original historians didn't have that much to work with. So later on, once they started getting additional materials, and I'm going to talk now about the progressive historians, and I think you're going to like some of this discussion. But the, the historian that is, is sort of recognized. You notice that uh, Ed, Ed, you didn't notice, but Ed lifted his eyebrows when he heard progressive historians. You guys are going to like that. You're, that... you're going to like it because you're going to disagree with it, and you're going to, <laughs> you're going to disagree with the progressive We'll start huffing and puffing. Okay. And these progressive historians are going to be, I'm giving a little bit of an insight down the road, they're going to be discredited over time. So what did the progressive historians do? And the quick answer is they came up with the notion that at the time there was concern about uh, red scares and concern about communism, and they started really focusing on economics. They, they, they were able to get access to the records of bonds. So Charles Beard, to his credit, starts looking at other ways of history, not just the letters of the historians, not just the minutes and the journals, but looking at other kinds of sources. And when, we, when you're studying history, you want to look at primary sources. So, so Charles Beard gets access to the ownership records of the securities, meaning the bonds. And he finds out that, the, I don't know the specific numbers, but a large chunk of the founding fathers who were pushing the U.S. Constitution, lo and behold, they own bonds. So Beard comes up with this notion, and this is during the progressive period, 1920s, is this progressivism is very famous. So they came up with this notion that really they weren't looking to save the country. This is the argument that the founding fathers weren't looking to come up with this great preservation of democracy and and uh, you know doing all these wonderful things and innovating and and experiments in democracy and protecting rights. They were interested in protecting their finances because if they own these bonds, they're protecting their investments. So this is an economic interpretation of what the founders accomplished. So let me read you a little bit about. Uh, how some of the economic historians and Charles Beard is, is the, the guy that's at the top of the list. So the economic interpretations, uh, here I'm going to read you a little bit from Beard. 
And originally this was very popular, this notion, and he was publishing, his book was called An Economic Interpretation of the Constitution of the United States, published in 1913, and these historians are presuming that the framers acted at not of idealistic or patriotic motivations, but Beard is arguing, and it's a harsh critique, that the founders acted out of their selfish class interest. So Beard points out that, lo and behold, if you look at the founding fathers, these aren't your everyday farmers. These aren't folks who are toiling in the fields and uh, are not slaves, certainly. They're not women. These are, in, in the South, these are the aristocrats and the plantation owners. And in the North, they're wealthy merchants. We could go through the list of the names, and what they all share in common is that they are aristocratic from their perspective of their finances. They, they are wealthy, and they would benefit if the system uh, is going to be successful. And we could debate back and forth about, I, I think personally, that you, you want people to have an interest. You want them to have skin in the game because that motivates people, right? So, uh, so these economic historians at the turn of the century, early 1900s, took the view that the founders weren't these heroes. They were looking out for themselves. It just so happens that uh, things worked out nicely. So that's Beard's interpretation. Well, uh, well there was something to be said that uh, that we that the colonists already had a tremendous amount of liberty and freedom that they were already enjoying as colonists, and the king wanted to strip them away of freedoms they already had. A lot of people perceive, misperceive that we fought England for liberty. No, quite frankly, we fought England to preserve our liberties, and the preservation part is sometimes lost in the conversation. We already had these rights, and we already had these freedoms, and we were enjoying them very nicely on this side of the pond, and here comes the king trying to squeeze us from, squeeze our liberty away, so we fought back. So let's, let's peel that back a little bit, and I agree with some of what you're saying, that the, the reason why the colonists had rights to the extent that they did have rights, was that England was preoccupied, and we talked about it a prior evening, and people can go to your website and they can read about the mercantilist theory. So under the British economic system, the British wanted the colonies to prosper because the British could get their taxes and they'd be buying from Britain, and we could talk about how mercantilism worked. But uh, I wouldn't say that Britain was interested in protecting American or the, the colonial rights. You know, Britain was interested in Britain benefiting, and as long as they kept the colonists happy, then uh, you know Britain would benefit. Uh, so there were no, and let's be careful about how to, how to recognize the rights that some colonists had under the, that system. Um, the, the colonial governors in some states or some colonies had better rights than others. Massachusetts is an example of where there was there's very active uh, representative democracy in, in Massachusetts. Some of the other states, less so. You had colonial governors who had a, a tighter fist and uh, who were more repressive. But, uh, you know, there was, I'll be careful, I'll, I'll say it this way, that you didn't have a systematized and a, um, you know, a firmly established set of written protections that you would later get through the Bill of Rights and through the U.S. Constitution. So things were more open-ended, and there might be kings and might be governors under the British system where, yeah, you had more rights. Uh, but then under a different king, and when Britain decided that they wanted to collect more taxes, nothing stopped them from doing it. If Britain wanted to put troops in your house and wanted to shut down a port or shut down a city because they wanted to, uh, they wanted to, you know, extort something from the colonies, Britain could. So in theory, there was some degree of liberty. I agree with you. But on the other hand, nothing was guaranteed under the British system. How's that as an answer? And I'm wondering if okay, Ed well, to yeah. add to that. No, I think that's a good point. I well, think you're fine. Yeah, the the what what uh, what still holds true is the uh, the anger and and opposition to 
getting them. I mean, yeah, they might be paying the taxes, but they were paying it as disgruntled colonists. Well, they didn't have a say in the taxation. It was taxation without yeah. representation. That was it. That's basically it. Okay. So from the tax issue, yes, but the, on the freedom issue, my God, uh, are we going to compare the freedom and the liberties that the colonists had compared to their, the, the same British and uh, European sovereigns in Europe? I, I think not. I, th- I would think that the colonists were much more free to expand businesses, uh, buy property, um, you know, of matters of of real economic interest. I would I'd venture to say that colonists were much more free than sovereigns in, under the king in England. Yes or no? I would agree that they had a lot of economic freedom and they had political freedom as long as Britain was looking the other way and not trying to meddle into their affairs. And that's referred to as benign neglect. The, the British would uh, let us do our own thing as long as it served Brit- the British interests. Okay, fair enough. Continue. We're talking about this period in the 1920s, turn of the century, where economic historians are starting to focus on just economics. And I think we can probably all agree, if you just put on one set of lenses, you know, the example is if you're a, if you're a uh, carpenter, right, the solution to your problems has to do with cutting and nails and wood, right, woodworking. If you're a, uh, you know, if you're, if, if you're a doctor, you may see medical solutions. So depending upon what set of glasses you're wearing, you know, that's, that's, that's how you view the world. So here, if they're looking at it economically, and this is what they would say, these economic historians were saying that uh, there was economic interests. And by the way, under the Articles of Confederation, uh, you could argue that the states had more rights to do what they wanted. And the Constitution, we could get back and forth over uh, what, the, what the Constitution accomplished, etc. But uh, some would argue, some of these economic historians, that things weren't so bad. On, they, they sort of reevaluated. Uh, it wasn't a crisis, according to some of these economic historians. Uh, so in other words, if they're saying there was less of a problem and there's no need to rush to fix it, they're trying to minimize the accomplishments of the founders, and they're looking at economics. So, for example, they start pointing out that, hey, there are differences on economic bases. You've got the South versus the North. You've got the East versus the West. You've got merchants versus planters. So they're looking at things from an economic worldview, and they're calling into question some of the accomplishments. So this is Charles. Beard, I'm holding him out as the, the primary economic historian. And then what happens? The next generation of historians, this is historiography, you're looking at the writing of history and how the study of history has changed over time looking at the founding. So a group of other historians realize, wait a second, it is true that a lot of the founders own bonds and would benefit, but Beard didn't know, because it wasn't available at the time, when they bought the bonds. And it makes a difference if they own the bonds prior to the Constitutional Convention, or if they wound up buying the bonds later to invest in the country, so it, that, that affects their, let's call it their self-interest or the, the conflicts of interest. Uh, and as it later turns out, that a lot of the founders did buy bonds after. So when they voted to do the Constitution, they weren't doing it because it affected them at the time, but they then, they, everyone understand the point? That yeah. You can't just look at who owned bonds, you have to figure out when they were buying those securities. Well, they were casting a vote of confidence in the new Constitution. Exactly. That gets to the point about having skin in the game. They, they thought this system would work, they're putting their money where their mouth is. Ah, so that's, 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 that's important for the audience to understand. So it was uh, power by empowerment, even though it, it, at this point in the game, it's kind of, uh, what would I say, uh, illusionary or fictitious? Or was you believe that it was authentic in terms of, couldn't have possibly been real stability, economic stability, but it was basically a symbol of empowerment, of belief and hope and trust in what they were doing. 
would call it an investment. They were investing in this model of democracy, not just putting together the Constitution because it would benefit them financially, but uh, some of them did own bonds beforehand, but putting uh, their money where their mouth was and, and you know, how better to invest in the country than to buy bonds and make sure that uh, you know, the country is going to prosper. So that, that sort of begins to pull the thread out, some, out of some of these progressive interpretations. And there are things that the progressives added to the study of this kind of this history, showing that there were economic differences. Uh, one of the other ways to test a, you know, when we're talking about science, you can test science by doing, everyone knows this from middle school, you do a, um, you come up with a hypothesis, and then you do a, do a test variable, independent and dependent variable, and then you can test things by repetition of experiments. But how do you do experiments in social science as opposed to hard science, and the different ways you can try to replicate science or scientific approaches, um, you know, as you come up with the same idea with hypothesis, you look at records and you see if the records support your theory. Uh, so he did ask good questions. This is Beard and the progressive historians. But I think they were focused too much just on economics. And another way, again, of showing how you, you test things over time is uh, you look to see, well, what about those who supported the Constitution and those who didn't support the Constitution? So let's now talk about the differences between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists. So the, the heroes today, when you listen to the Hamilton musical and when you read a middle school textbook or civics textbook, you know, the Federalists are understood to be those who were the founders, more or less, who advanced the idea of the, the Constitution. Uh, but we also have to give credit to the anti-Federalists. Uh, but here the question that the historians were looking at, well, if Beard is right and the Federalists all stood the benefit financially in their pocketbook by in, in, you know, investing in the Constitution, then what about the anti-Federalists? Why were they opposing it? And as it turns out, a lot of the anti-Federalists had the bonds also. So that economic interpretation doesn't hold water if you just think it's who owns bonds and who's going to benefit by what you perceive the Constitution will do or not do. In other words, some of the anti-Federalists had equally patriotic objectives and financially may have been in the same situation as the Federalists. They just had a difference of opinion on how strong the federal government should be. And the perfect example, by the way, in Massachusetts is Patrick Henry, and uh, we can go through some of the names of the anti-federalists. These are very patriotic Americans, but they just fundamentally disagreed, not for economic reasons, but because they thought that, you know, we fought Britain, we fought a strong central government. The last thing that these anti-federalists wanted to do was to recreate a king or a strong government that could tell people what to do because they thought the stronger the federal government is, the weaker the individual is, or the weaker the states are going to be. And there is some truth in that conversation. But it was not simply an economic interpretation because the economics don't line up that the federalists had one economic background and the anti-federalists had a different. So history is more complicated than just looking at it from one economic point of view. So this is well, the 1920s. Well, in fact, though... Discredited, but we did learn from it. Well, in fact, though, Adam, the anti-federalists got us the Bill of Rights. Good point. That's an excellent point. So do you want to talk about that real quickly? Yeah, no, the, uh, um, Matt, James, the, the original Constitution did not have a Bill of Rights, but James Madison promised that he would introduce these uh, amendments to the Constitution specifically protecting certain rights, like uh, the right to uh, freedom of religion, freedom of speech, the bare arms— uh, to be safe in your from uh, unreasonable searches and seizures, so all these things were added. And Madison was a man of honor; he honored his word. He proposed twelve amendments, and ten of them were passed uh, within a couple of years after the Constitution was adopted. And I think I'm not sure of any evidence, but I think it, these Bill of Rights, the Bill of Rights, and the rights protected therein, certainly assuaged any concerns or most of the concerns that the Anti-Federalists had. 
uh, Patrick Henry. George Mason is a very famous anti-federalist, uh, and I think so in many respects the anti-federalists improved the Constitution. For I completely agree, and that's a good description. So and let me tell you why the Federalists didn't think you needed a Bill of Rights. And I like to point to Hamilton because he's one of my heroes among others. But their interpretation, and including Madison, was that because the Constitution doesn't take away certain rights, and they thought the federal right. government was a government of limited rights, unless Congress is given a certain right, Congress or a power, Congress can't do a power that it isn't given. If it's not expressly right. enumerated, then Congress can't do it. The president can't do it unless he's given a power. Yeah. The anti-federalists were more skeptical, and their concern was, yeah, the Constitution may not say the president can do something or that Congress can do something, or may only give them certain powers that are specifically listed or enumerated. Nevertheless, we can't trust them, number one. And number two, over time, how will it be interpreted? Yep. So the compromise, and you're exactly right, was, and again, the Federalists thought it wasn't necessary, and uh, they thought they could be interpreted. You know, we can get into a big discussion about interpretation of constitutional documents. But the Federalists thought it wasn't necessary, but when there was so much opposition to the anti-Federalists, the compromise was that, yes, we will do a Bill of Rights, and that was the, the, the compromise that took place after the Constitution was signed in, I think it was September 17th of 1787. The Bill of Rights was proposed. The different states came up with their own individual proposals. But at the end of the day, it was Madison who was the one that combined them all together. Each of the states had different proposals on what they wanted to see in the Bill of Rights. And those 12, uh, there were more than that originally. It was, it was reduced to 12. And of those 12, 10 were adopted. That's, uh, everyone knows, as the Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments to the Constitution. And you can use the First Amendment as an example. The First Amendment contains uh, effectively four or five subdivisions or different kinds of rights that were grouped together under the First Amendment. And I, I think we're, we're all on the same page that the, the, the because of the anti-federalists wanting to really focus on liberty as opposed to the federalists focusing on power of the government, that led to the Bill of Rights, which is, uh, you know, we would be very different today if we didn't have a Bill of Rights. Yep. Oh, my God. And it was adopted by December of 1791, so it's within two years of the new government taking office. And remember, that has to go to each of the states to conventions. Right. So Congress proposed, Madison wrote it, 12 amendments, and one of the questions was, should Madison, what, what should be, here we're, we're going off, off, off the track a little bit, so it's the first Congress which meets in 1789. Yep. Remember the Constitution is written in 1787, has to go through the states to be ratified, so then in May of 17, if I'm not mistaken, don't hold me to the date, but 88, I, believe, yeah. I believe it was May time frame of 1789 is when Washington comes in, right. becomes the first president, and you have the first Congress, and other hours, we've talked about all the law that was passed, the important nation building that occurred with that first Congress, with Madison as the leader of the House, and Washington's cabinet with Hamilton and Jefferson and, and Henry Knox. So we've talked about that first year, but one of the big issues for Madison was, what should go first? Should they do the Bill of Rights first, or should they lay the foundations, creating the different departments and getting the army in the working order and doing the finances? And the answer that Madison came up with and Hamilton and Washington agreed was let's take care of the housekeeping, get that out of the way, and they waited till the end of the session to do the Bill of Rights. That was then sent to the different states, and uh, you know once the states approved it, it became the Bill of Rights. But it's interestingly, since we're talking about the Bill of Rights, uh, the Bill of Rights is the first 10 amendments. I'm not going to put you on the spot, but the 
First Amendment after the Bill of Rights was the Eleventh Amendment. If everyone does the math, the first ten is the Bill of Rights. <laughs> okay, and you could ask us what is the Eleventh Amendment. So I could ask you, but I'm not going to ask you what the Eleventh Amendment is. I'm, I'm going to tell you, and it's coincidental because. And Vidal is cheating. He's looking into the Constitution. Yeah, I have a pocket Constitution. He has a pocket Constitution. The Eleventh Amendment is one of these areas. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'm working on a brief. Uh, which is going to a court on an 11th Amendment issue. So let me talk to you a little bit about the 11th Amendment. So the 11th Amendment is a topic that most people are, don't really pay, doesn't get the, uh, the attention as the First Amendment or the 14th Amendment or some of the other more important amendments. But uh, the 11th Amendment raises the question, and this is totally off the subject, of what could the First Amendment that they had to do after the Bill of Rights, what could this 11th Amendment be, which, again, is the First Amendment after the Bill of Rights? Uh, and the answer is there was a Supreme Court case, Chisholm versus Georgia. What is Chisholm versus Georgia? You had a member, who, a creditor who lived in South Carolina, and he was suing the state of Georgia, claiming that, and he was correct, that Georgia owed him money from the Revolutionary War. So a lawsuit was b brought by a resident of South, a citizen of South Carolina against the state of Georgia because Georgia owed him money. And the question is, can you sue in federal court to enforce a, de a debt? And remember, back at that time, Jefferson is the example I like to give. He didn't consider himself an American. He considered himself a Virginian who was a member of this new Articles of Confederation, this new emerging government. But he considered himself first a Virginian. Only second was he an American. So to allow someone from another state, South Carolina, to sue the state of Georgia, can the federal courts do this? Is this going to be allowed? And you know, this is should someone from you know pick a country that's not the United States be able to sue the state of Florida um, and because they consider themselves almost separate countries. So the Supreme Court, this is one of the first decisions reached in 1793, totally off our subject, but the Supreme Court decided in a four-to-one decision that, yes, a South Carolina resident can sue in federal court to enforce a judgment suing a state from another state. And that, that became a big controversy because when the states were ratifying the Constitution, they didn't think that uh, someone from one state should be able to sue the state government in a second state. Uh, so when that decision came down, Chisholm versus Georgia, the reaction was pretty fierce. And um, in the next day, and I point this out in the brief, the very next day, the um, representatives from Massachusetts and other states introduced into the Congress and said this is the third Congress, 1793. So the, right, the day after the decision came down by the U.S. Supreme Court, introduced bills to amend the Constitution to reverse, and every so often this happens. And this is one of the good things about a democracy. And we can get into a nice discussion about this if we wanted. But in a democracy, if a court makes a decision, the Constitution is the basis of their decision. If the voters don't like that judicial decision, and we can talk about during the during the, the Civil War period, before the Civil War, there were a lot of really bad decisions. And one of the beauties of our Constitution is this adaptability that if the voters don't like... They can repeal the amendment. You can repeal an amendment or do a new amendment. We well, hell, how about legalizing booze? My God, that was the stupidest thing on the planet. And that's, that's a great <laughs> example. Right? So I think that's the 21st Amendment and the... Um, I want to say it was the, uh, the I want to say 19th, but the 21st. And you'll look at your pocket uh, your, your pocket uh, list of, of the amendments. But uh, long story short, that's a very good example of how the voters realized that no, we didn't want it, so we changed it. So what's the point? So the 11th Amendment deals with people from one state suing a state. 
a state government, and this is the concept of sovereign immunity and also states' rights, that states did not have to be sued or didn't want to be sued in federal courts. If you want to sue a state government, the quick answer is, and it gets a little complicated, but basically you can't do it in federal court because the federal court does not have jurisdiction under the 11th Amendment to allow a suit to proceed um, in federal court unless, and this really gets into the weeds, unless the basis of the lawsuit is the 14th Amendment civil rights, the government has more, Congress has more uh, strength and it has more power, enforcement power, if they're suing under the 14th Amendment as opposed to uh, other constitutional... Which is the Commerce Clause, correct? That's right. So the Commerce Clause gives Congress authority, but the 11th Amendment limits the Commerce Clause, whereas the 14th Amendment, which is the civil rights enforcement powers, this is really in the weeds, uh, is stronger, according to the courts, than just the Commerce Clause. So, hmm. So the hmm. Real, well, I want that, yeah, now I got that got I think the Aussie, uh, I think the audience uh, it got fuzzy for us cuz it got fuzzy for me. So, uh, for clarity's sake, uh, the 11th says that you uh, you cannot ask the federal government to decide on a financial dispute of payment of debts between an individual and a state or mm-hmm. between two it's states. Than that. So the 11th amendment to strip it down says you cannot sue a state in federal court. The states can only be sued in their own courts. Right. They don't have to be subject unless they agree to suit in federal court. Okay, cool. Now that's clear. Okay, period. And that was state. that's a state's rights issue, as it should be. Correct. The exception to the 11th Amendment is, and I'll use civil rights as an example because it's the classic example, that um, you know, if that were the case, then a southern state who wanted to violate people's talk about civil rights. Civil rights doesn't just have to be, and usually it's understood to be, uh, you know, if you're discriminating against someone on the basis of race or religion, but it also may be discrimination against someone on other civil rights. But what the 14th Amendment did that came after the Civil War, the 14th Amendment says that all Americans are citizens and that Congress has the right to enforce the citizenship protections, that uh, the former slaves are entitled to be treated just like everybody else. And uh, if the states want to keep discriminating, then Congress has special rights and these are called the enforcement authorities in some of the different uh, paragraphs in the 14th Amendment. So long story short, Congress has more power to enforce civil rights laws, uh, and the 11th Amendment doesn't stand in the way is what the courts have, have determined. And there are a couple other exceptions, but that's that's the big exception. But we've totally gone afield from, but we, we did a nice little aside about the 11th Amendment. So we talked about the Bill of Rights, we talked about the 11th Amendment. So now I want to, unless you have any other conversations you want to flesh out a little bit further, I want to get back to some of the other historical interpretations. Please do. Okay. So long story short, we had the progressive historians, that's in the 1920s time frame, and they ask all kinds of questions about how people's economic interests affect their decisions and their behavior. Uh, Now let's skip ahead to the 1940s and the 1960s, and we'll call these the consensus school historians. So what are the consensus school historians? And the name gives it a little bit of, gives you some hints. But they saw the revolution in the Constitution as one continuous movement, as opposed to Beard, who thought this was all based upon economics. Uh, And the conservative and consensus school historians, I'll read you a little bit about some of the descriptions. They saw the Constitution as primarily a political document, not an economic document. 
the delegates at the convention were primarily concerned with making a better government than under the Articles, one that was based upon representation, fixed elections, a written constitution that would be the supreme law of the land, what else, a bicameral legislature with the House and the Senate, the separation of powers, checks and balances. So these historians challenged Beard's assertion that the poor didn't have any say in the Constitution. Let me back up a little bit. So Beard was saying that, you know, who, who's, who are the folks responsible for making this Constitution? Those who were wealthy who benefited. Uh, so these other historians are saying that it was not just about, uh, you know, how, how people's bread is buttered. It's also based upon um, the, these more modern historians. So they challenged Beard's assertion that the poor didn't have a say because the poor did have the opportunity to weigh in and get involved with state ratifications. So these uh, more recent historians are saying that many of the poor were small farmers and they did have the right to vote, uh, depending upon which state. So some of these new, more modern historians, so we could give some of the names, but Richard Hofstetter is an example. And uh, we can talk about Edward Morgan, who is one of my favorite historians, uh, who, who does, deserves a lot of credit. Um, and we also, moving away from, or calling it the more recent consensus school historians that say, yeah, there were economic motivations, but there were also political motivations, and they wanted to get it right. Uh, let's skip ahead now to the 1960s and 70s. So I'm going to hear you ask you tongue-in-cheek, what do you want to call the 60s and 70s? What do you want to call these historians? Groovy. Groovy? Well, what else? What's going on in the 60s and 70s? Counterculture. How about feminists? then you're all right. This is all part of that social environment of, you know, the 60s and 70s is a pretty radical period of time. Or as and, Rush Limbaugh would say, Nazi feminists. <laughs> so these are called new left or neo-progressive interpretations. Yeah, that's the right word, neo-progressive. Neo-progressive, new left. So there were social historians. So in the 60s and 70s, we're now focusing on the lives of everyday people. So that became a focus of history. So the civil rights movement, by the way, is under, under um, you know, making big, big, big steps and improving uh, access to the polls, and we're making big advancements. So that's part of this neo-left or neo-progressive interpretation. So looking at the history from a civil rights perspective, uh, also from a feminist perspective, and they're trying to look and see, you know, instead of history from the top down, what about history from the bottom up? In fact, I saw I believe it was yesterday uh, in one of the major newspapers that uh, we're now looking at, um, let's see, Monroe was uh, Washington Adams, Jefferson, Madison, Monroe. So Monroe was the fifth president. And there's a lot of attention in the last couple of days about uh, we've now figured out, and it shouldn't have been that hard to figure this out, by the way, that Monroe, um, after the Civil War was fought, Slaves who were on his plantation, his family's plantation, were all freed, and they took the name Monroe. So apparently it's no surprise that some of the surrounding communities nearby the plantation that President Monroe used to live, uh, so these are former slaves, descendants of former slaves, all have the last name Monroe, and the museum and the, um, you know, the, the plantation today is it's not just a museum, it's a tourist attraction. So that tourist attraction is recognizing that, yeah, we should give some credit to and, and get some involvement and make this a broader conversation, because there are people in that nearby community who have the same name in row as and there it's not just a small handful of people it's a large group who uh, again so this was in the paper from uh, just the last day or so so this is the, the, the understanding that history isn't just uh, you know the, the the great demigods who wrote the constitution but it's looking at history from a broader net casting a, a wider net yep. and that's the neo-left or neo-progressive interpretation and, and what we can talk well about. right around that same time in 1973 Earl Monroe, a shooting guard, uh, helped the New York Knicks win the NBA title. There you go. So 
So we've got lots of Monroes, and uh, there are reasons to, and that's social history. Social history yep. is looking to see, you know, what, what's on people's plates. What are Did the you concerns? really go there? You really went there, didn't you, Earl Monroe? He was a shooting guard. He was on the Baltimore Bullets back when they were called the Bullets, and they were in Baltimore. And he was a shooting guard for the Knicks in 1973 when they won the NBA uh, championship. Why did you just tell Adam the truth? You were you fell you fell no, sound as, very, you were sound was, asleep, and he, all of a sudden you woke up to he, make that he, comment. He was he, he. I remember when I was, he, I was in high school then, and we uh, we used to call it the Earl Monroe fake to the open man and shoot. God. <laughs> that was just total corn. There you go. That's social history. Okay. That's so what social history is about. Was, Common was, people. You know, that was last, Isn't that right, Adam? The last time the Knicks ever did anything for society. That's was, social history. God. All right. Go ahead, Adam. So I'm going to give you some more names of historians and different uh, approaches and theories that they've come up with and additional developments or discoveries that they've come up with. Because remember, history isn't just taking it in a dusty book and uh, you know, reading what it said and taking it for granted. History is reevaluating and the re-understanding, and, and you know, history changes over time as we have a different way of understanding and applying it. So here are other names. So we've got Robert Brown, who was a historian in the 1950s, and he's reacting to Beard. He's reacting to the economic historians. And he's the individual, among others, who found out that there was absolutely no correlation that, that could be shown between the wealth of the delegates to the Constitutional Convention and to their position on the Constitution. Another important historian, Forrest MacDonald, his book is We the People, which is a great name, similarly is showing that, and I'll give you some examples, that uh, you would expect that the Federalists would be the wealthy ones and the Anti-Federalists either would be less wealthy or didn't own bonds, and it turns out they were very rich Anti-Federalists, they were Anti-Federalists who owned the bonds, so that economic theory doesn't work out very nicely, right. and it got largely discredited. Yep. Uh, and as it turns out, what then led to the differences between why were some people Federalists and some of them Anti-Federalists? Uh, so historians said, well, maybe the Federalists tended to be younger, and the Federalists tended to be more in the cities as opposed to the Anti-Federalists who were more in the countryside, and the Anti-Federalists are older, right? So maybe that's an interpretation. And again, this is how history changes over time. We, we look at different things to study and focus on, and it gives a broader insight into uh, you know, how, how we understand things today and how today how our economy and society works. Um, so that's, that's a little bit of the background. I, I could go into more examples. Maybe I'll, I'll give you one more that we talked about in another evening. Uh, and let me give you also my favorite historian. And I, I say I've got a lot of favorite historians, but here's probably my, my truly most favorite historian, if I can find where he is. But this is Ellis, and I may have mentioned this before. But Ellis sort of reconciles everyone together. And let me read you some of what Ellis says. So Ellis tells us that he says that the founding elite were driven by motives that were more political than economic, and I agree that they were driven by mainly political, but they wanted to do the right thing. And so there was an economic benefit, but they were driven mainly by political motivations, chiefly the desire to expand the meaning of the American Revolution. And remember that these founding fathers at the Philadelphia Convention, they'd been very active during the Revolutionary War. They realized that victory that they beat the British was miraculous, so they wanted to preserve what they'd accomplished. They wanted their legacy. So he continues that... Uh, they wanted to expand the meaning of the American Revolution so it could function on a larger, indeed, national scale. The great conflict, as I see it, this is Ellis writing, was not between aristocracy and democracy, because some would say that the Federalists are more arist aristocratic, whereas the Anti-Federalists are more, quote, democratic. So he's saying that it's, as he sees it, not a dispute between aristocracy and democracy, whatever those 
elusive categories might mean, but rather between nationalists and confederationists. So nationalists were the Federalists. They wanted one nation that could stand together as a nation, whereas the anti-Federalists were more interested in a confederation, a loose relationship between the states. He goes on to say, which is shorthand for those who believe in the principles of the American Revolution, they thought could flourish in a much larger political theater than those who thought it would not. Finally, my version of the story regards the successful collaboration of this small cadre, not as a betrayal, because some of the historians were saying that by coming up with the Constitution, it was a betrayal of the theory or the, 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 the spirit of 1776, which was radical democracy. The spirit of 1776 was, you know, uh, individuals were protesting and dumping tea in the streets and really standing up for individual rights. So to the extent that the federal government is in a way contracting some individual rights, Ellis is telling us that he does not view the Constitutional Convention as a betrayal of core convictions of the American Revolution, but rather as a brilliant rescue, because if things spiraled out of control, then the revolution would have turned on itself, and then you would have had another French Revolution. And uh, you know, some would say that the French Revolution was extremely democratic, right? The Democrats were killing the right. king and the killing the aristocrats. And they wound up with a military dictatorship. And if that's what happens if, if a democracy spirals out of control in a revolution, that's exactly right. It winds up becoming a military dictatorship or worse. So I, I agree with Ellis that uh, the founders came to the rescue, and uh, that's, that's, I think, the prevailing okay. interpretation today. Well, let me, just... let me give you a, a Vidal interpretation that I've thought about since I was in college, which oh, is... Wait a minute. This requires a, oh, a, a no. sound effect. No, 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 no. I think, I think that a big part of the difference between the Federalists and the Anti-Federalists, and as I said before, the Anti-Federalists made a great contribution to the Constitution, and it's kind of belt and suspenders, but it still you know, really gets to the core of constitutional building. But I think a big part of the difference was uh, what Madison said in Federalist Number 10. And he, what he did was he saw through and he said, the bigger republic, a federal republic, will be better than all these individual republics because no single faction will be able to take over the entire federal uh, republic uh, like it can happen in an individual small state. And he was expecting the U.S. would continue growing and I think that uh, history has vindicated Mr. Madison. Uh, and I think the Anti-Federalists are right to be skeptical. Uh, a lot of, for example, today, a lot of the criticism of the uh, administrative state really goes back to the warnings of the Federalists and how the administrative state has grown since the Progressive Era and especially since the New Deal. But I think it goes back, the difference is the Federalists bet that the federal republic, the bigger republic, would last better, longer, and then when some states were taken over by a faction, other states would would not, and they would be able to balance each other for the common good. So that's the Vidal interpretation. Wait a minute, do we? Which we go? Oh. No, no, no. It's a bigger republic, because it used to be thought that a republic had to be small and homogeneous. And Madison said, you know, that's dangerous. You, we're, we're going to be better off with a federal republic with more states where no single faction can take us over. And that it turned out to be visionary because right. we regrew With the warnings that the Federalists had. Once he put in the Bill of Rights, which I think were necessary, then I think we had the kind of a balance. It's like an example where the common thinking produces something better than what any single man would have done. 
I uh, to so the, I agree another. only to the degree that we're large enough where a place as small as Kivas Kane, a man standing up for what is right, can lose his freedom of speech, well, and nobody happened. gives a damn. That that can happen. That's what happened. An example of how a faction won in Dade County, but it doesn't necessarily win in the whole state. Or the reverse, where we actually won as as a county, and the state took it from us. Okay. In, the ca- in the case of voting for an, uh, uh, an elections uh, supervisor. Okay. Where we had it right, the rest of the state had it wrong, and now the state has forced us to also elect our elections supervisor, which I find to be atrocious, considering what happened up in, in Broward in Adams' neck of the woods with Brenda Snipes. Oh, well, nevertheless, let's, let's, uh, uh, we've got four minutes left, so let's, uh, Adam, uh, but that was pretty sharp today. Let me build on to the argument you just heard from Ed, which is, and I agree, Federalist number 10, this is the notion that if you go big and uh, the different factions, their, their local parochial interests get diluted if you have more and more people sitting at the table. Right, so this is this approach of, and we gave the example last week of uh, economic theory of, um, uh, you know, capitalism and invisible hand that things work better if you have, uh, you know, more people involved in the process, and that's uh, the way capitalism works. So democracy and capitalism work closely together, uh, and also just adding on to what Ed said that. Sure, direct democracy is very democratic, but it only works on a very small scale. So we were too big to have direct democracy, but we could still have a very effective democracy as long as the Constitution sets the framework and parameter for for the democracy to work. I wanted to give you two little examples, by the way, of of some of the really important, I think, developments and and, uh, just the process of how they worked that out over that summer in 1787. So here I'm going to give you the first example is uh, we, we know Gruvner Morris, who was uh, one of the leaders at the Constitutional Convention. We've talked about him, who eventually went on to become an ambassador to France, and he worked closely with Hamilton. But uh, at the very end, this is in mid-September, not all of the framers were willing to sign. And you mentioned Mason was one of the framers who was not willing to sign, because if we didn't have a Bill of Rights, and they wouldn't put his name on the Constitution. So here the question was, how can we get this document to the states for ratification? And what's the best way politically to move the ball? So let me read you a little bit about uh, the decision and the suggestion from Gouverneur Morris. And this can dovetail, by the way, with other constitutional conventions. So to secure those precious signatures, they wanted it to appear to be unanimous. Morris had contrived a verbal sleight of hand. Rather than have the signers attest that they personally agreed with the Constitution, Morris drafted the following statement to appear above their signatures. This is what Morris wrote for the discussion done in convention by unanimous consent of the states, not to say the delegates, but unanimous consent of the states. So for example, they were meeting in Philadelphia, which is in Pennsylvania. If I'm not mistaken, there were about eight representatives who attended from from Pennsylvania. So if you have the Constitution say at the very bottom when you sign your name, you're not signing that you individually agree, but you're signing by unanimous consent of the states. That's a way for some to sign their name, even if they didn't always agree with the full Constitution, and they're banking on the fact that there would be a Bill of Rights. So that made it more palatable and easier for people to digest and to agree, because they were signing off on their capacity as representing a state, as opposed to saying that I'm vouching for everything that's in this document. Brilliant. What do you think? I think so. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't think uh, Vidal is that impressed because the idea didn't, did not come from no, him. No, did not no, come no. from him, but... No, no. 
I, but I'm, I, I'm showing more enthusiasm. What no, do you think, that's, Adam? That's. You know, see how he just. He's, he, the, the, I just got a note from my wife, the see what happens? historian herself, who says that she agrees with William F. Buckley that he would rather be ruled by the first 1,000 names in the telephone book than by the Harvard faculty. Uh, and so, you know, oh, that's, it, it's saying that you don't want to trust just technical uh, knowledge. Just because people are knowledgeable and, you know, the, the technocrats doesn't mean that they have a civic virtue. I, I I agree with Katrina. Yep. Now I would like for her to come and replace you as, as she, a co-host. She might do she, that. She's more profound. But, uh, do I get a second? Come on, Adam. I'm going to give you one more historical snippet. So this is a historical trivia question for you. But we know Noah Webster for what? Noah Webster is famous for writing. Dictionary? I'm sorry? A dictionary? Dictionary. All right. So okay. how am I going to connect Noah Webster to the Constitution? So, Manny, tell us real quickly, what was the Federalist Papers and who wrote the Federalist Papers? Well, let's see here. Alexander Hamilton, uh, Madison, and the other fellow who didn't write that many, but... Uh, that's, right, that's right. John Jay. Jay. Okay, so we know about the Federalist Papers that was, was written to convince New York State to ratify. But uh, remember, when they left the Constitutional Convention, they had to go back to their home states and convince their home states to ratify this because we need nine for it to take effect. So lo and behold, here I'm going to read you about uh, Franklin gave a speech about how, although he doesn't agree with everything, they, he doesn't think they could do any better. And then one of the delegates was Fitzsimmons. So what does Fitzsimmons do? Fitzsimmons uh, sent a copy of the Constitution to Noah Webster who he had uh, recruited to write a pamphlet supporting ratification. In three weeks, Webster produced a book or a pamphlet called An Examination into the Leading Principles of the Federal Constitution, which was widely distributed to the pro-ratification forces. So you had really those delegates to that constitutional convention, whether or not they agreed with every word or not, they began the process of politicking for it, supporting it, getting uh, public support for that document. And Noah Webster was recruited because he was a good writer, not just dictionaries, but he was a pamphleteer. And uh, here you, you show that Webster, and I'll have to figure out what state this was, but the quick answer is whatever state Fitzsimmons was from. Um, that was, the, that was the process. It's not enough to just write the Constitution or write a amendment. You have to get it approved. And that process was turns out to be an education process. The voters got to get behind it, understand it. And uh, eventually, and we talked about this on another evening, once you got your nine states, the Constitution took effect. And then uh, in the, you know, the next year, 1789, Washington gets sworn in, sworn in, and we're off to the races. Wow. Um, unbelievable. Yep. Well, you know, that uh, pretty much does it for the old man here, Ed Vidal, and the super concrete, conservative, and Mac on the Rock, and the suave and intelligent and moving and passionate Adam Levinson. This is it for Statues and Stories. It ends on a good note. Would you like to have a closing statement, Adam? The closing statement is we just celebrated the 4th of July. I'm uh, wishing everyone a safe and enjoyable summer, and uh, it's never too late to pick up a book about American history or to tune in uh, to WSQF to talk about and listen to uh, statutes and stories. Thanks, everybody. Take care, my friend. Thank you, Adam. And stay free, and I hope you've enjoyed our statutes and stories segment and in, in a tribute to Ed Vidal's uh, prowess and his wonderful wife, Katrina. I'm going to give Katrina the, the right to uh, enjoy this song by Neil Young, The Old Man. Thank <laughs> you.